Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. joining us on Reppin. I'm Evelyn, your host. My next guest is a popular Food Network star with an infectious giggle. Her signature food style is American favorites with an Indian soul. She hosts multiple television shows like Artie Party and the travel show Hidden Eats. She's also been on Guy's Grocery Games, Cooks vs. Cons, and Christmas Cookie Challenge. She also cooks along some of the best chefs in the country, and she's no stranger to competition either. She's won Chopped All-Stars, Cutthroat Kitchen All-Stars, and Guy's Grocery Games. But what you may not have known was my next guest actually got her start behind the camera, working at CNN, and went on to produce Sand and Sorrow, the HBO documentary about the genocide in Darfur, narrated by George Clooney and directed by Peabody Award winner Paul Friedman. You're going to learn all about her today because we've got her out of the kitchen, and she's hanging out with us here. We've got Artie Sequeira. How are you? It's great to see you. I'm good. I'm good. I'm flying high on my uh, super sugary caffeine right now. I'm so excited that you're here. There's so much that I want to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. You are the woman who changed my life with kale. So thank you so much. You're welcome. (laughs) Artie, your kale and mango salad is so good. You completely demystified it because for me before, kale was like shoe leather. And all of a sudden it just became this delicious vegetable that I can't get enough of. So thank you for that. Let's start at the beginning, though. Tell me a little bit about your background, what it was like growing up there, because I know you were born in Mumbai and then raised in Dubai and then came to Northwestern. So (laughs) reel that in a little bit and give me a, a general overview of what that upbringing was like. Sure. So I am a member of the Indian diaspora. So India is one of the few countries, I think, where if you meet people in India, they're always talking about how they're going to try to get out of there. Okay. Um, so my parents, uh, were born and raised in India and then they decided this is just not going to work for us anymore. We need to get out. And so they, um, were in Dubai. I was conceived. (laughs) Don't like to think about that too much. (laughs) And then my mom went back to India to have me. I was, I'm the oldest. And so I think there was a sense of, I want to be around family and in hospitals I trust. And then I, I moved back to Dubai at the age of three months. And basically I stayed in Dubai from the age of three months until I was 18. And I had this very cosmopolitan upbringing because we were Indian immigrants in a country that is primarily expatriate. 
And so the majority of people that were my friends and people we interacted with were from all over the world. And I went to a British run school, which is why I still have a little bit of an accent. And so, and my dad loves to travel and, and that was part of his job was to travel. And so he would go to places on business trips and then come back and say, okay, that's it. This summer we're going to Turkey. Wow. You know, you guys are going to love it. And it was part of the culture in Dubai because the summer is so horribly hot that there's literally nothing to do. You can go to the beach, but you'll still be burnt to a crisp. And so in the summer, people would either go back home. A lot of my friends from the UK would go back to the UK for the summer, or people would go on holiday because the airport pretty much had trips to anywhere in the world. And so that was really a huge part of my upbringing and a huge part of my identity was as sort of this third culture kid, but also a third culture kid who loved to explore the world. And I still do. When I was 11, the Gulf War happened, the first one. And up till then, the news had not been interesting to me. Then when the Gulf War happened, CNN had just been born and they piped it in on our local TV station, which, you know, would only start at four o'clock. So this idea of news all day long, a 24 hour station was so new to me. And that's when I fell in love with news. I was like, wow, look at these men and women and women going out and getting stories and telling us what's going on and really uncovering the truth, no matter how ugly it is. And I thought, well, that's what I want to do with my life, you know, because it seemed like also a virtuous and respected career. And, you know, as an Indian, there is some truth to, and I, I wonder if it's the same thing for you as an Asian lady, there are some careers that are more respectable than others, namely doctor, lawyer, accountant, you know, all those things. I have some sense of that. Yes. Yes. And so um, journalist was just coloring outside the lines a little bit, yes, but still was acceptable. So then when it came time to choose a university, my dad was like, you're going to America because that's where you will be accepted and you can work and every generation, we're just going to do better for ourselves. I got you off the farm right? because he was a farmer. Yeah. Literally got you off the farm. Yeah. Literally. literally yeah. And now you're going to get us to America. So when I looked up universities that had the best journalism programs in the country, it was Northwestern. And by good fortune, I got in. And then that's what got me to the States. And I've never left. <laughs> that's quite an upbringing. When you have that, as you called it, cosmopolitan upbringing, with this incredible exposure to so many other cultures and walks of life and experiences, how did it lend itself to shaping you? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I, because I had nothing to compare it to, that was just normal. And I think it gives me now a real fluency with people that I either don't agree with, or at least on the surface, don't have anything in common with. You know, I can always find a way to say, okay, okay, the common ground here often is, what did you have for lunch? Right. You start there, right? And you can... You can always start with food and there's always something there you can talk about, you know, like who's the best cook in your house? And then you kind of go that way. I didn't grow up with an us and them mentality. There were not any walls that were around where I lived because we could get on a plane and go anywhere, but we could also just go to my friend's house and have you know, a traditional, my best friend was Italian. So I could have a traditional Italian dinner or I had a friend who was from Madagascar and I could ask her what they ate. Oh my ate. God. Yeah. So that sense of the world being 
so much smaller than I think if you grow up in the States, you have that. I think the States is so big and so diverse and so complicated that it takes up your entire bandwidth, you know, of trying to understand people. But Dubai was so small and within it had such a diverse population that that knowing that people were from these different cultures and traditions was just kind of regular everyday life. And it has given me a hunger for that now and it, definitely a hunger to expose my children to that. I wondered if you struggled with this or came across this as I have. Okay, I am Chinese American. Mm-hmm. My parents are immigrants. Mm-hmm. There was a hope mm-hmm. to be something more practical, stable, the laundry list with which you so nicely. <laughs> I love that you're laughing. Um, you have to laugh or you're going to cry, you know? Yes. But, you know, to be an accountant, to be a doctor and culture aside, you know, being in college, there was a fear of just not getting a job. Yeah. Did you feel pressure when you said, I want to be a journalist? Because mm-hmm. it was right on the outside, like right on the cusp of acceptable. Yeah. Now, I made the mistake of going to my parents and saying, I want to be in entertainment, which didn't go over so well. So, you know, my approach was a little rough. Yeah. And I know we joked about being off the farm, but all kidding aside, your parents worked really hard yeah. for you guys. Oh, yeah. And, and, yeah. and mine did too. But so was there a pressure that you felt to succeed or to not go against what was expected of you. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, I think there's so much there. I mean, first of all, the fact that I was the oldest, I sort of felt like I had an extra dosage of all the hopes and dreams are put in this little girl, you know, and sometimes there's parts of me. So I've always struggled with my weight and I was adjusting my t-shirt earlier because I've always thought I have such broad shoulders and part of that, I don't know. I'm like, well, there's a lot on these shoulders. I remember getting a massage once and this lady was like, you know, when they say carry the world on your shoulders, they're just saying it as a metaphor, right? And I was like, I'm sorry, but I do, you know, I'm the oldest. So all the hopes and dreams are there. I feel really responsible for my parents. I feel very responsible for the money they paid to put me in this like private university. And so there was a period in my life, you know, after I graduated from university, I had interned at CNN the summer before in Chicago. And that's all I ever wanted to do was be a reporter for CNN. You know, I wanted to be Christian Amanpour. I wanted to be Bobby Batista, you know, rest in peace. And so when I graduated, they called me like two weeks before I graduated and said, hey, we have a job. You want it? And I was like, oh, I don't even care what it is. I'm going. (laughs) Yeah. So I had, I remember I graduated. I think I had a week off and then I started working. And I just thought, well, this wasn't so hard. I mean, I'm doing, I'm working at CNN, which is what I always wanted to do. They called me. I guess I've, I'm, I've done it. I'm doing well. And then the cold, hard landing happened a few years later when I got married and I, you know, my husband's an actor, which we had conversations about that. Don't you worry with my parents, <laughs> Okay. you know, to this day, my mom's like, don't you think he would be so good in advertising? And I'm like, yes, he would be. <laughs> But it's not what he wants to do, right, right. you know. So when I moved to LA, that's right when the news business was contracting, and I had a really hard time finding work. And I went into a long period; it must have been five years of really questioning my worth. And that was because I wasn't working, and I had put all my identity in my career, which we all do. Yes, we all do. And it's not—it's not bad, but it's not your whole identity. Right. Right. And so I had a lot of shame, you know, I was walking around with a lot of shame because my friends, you know, I had a friend who joined NBC News at the same time I joined CNN and she just kept 
going up, going up, going up at nightly, you know, and I was like, well, what am I doing with my life? And I felt every morning around this time I had become a Christian and I was every morning was just sitting under the tree and shaking my fist at the sky and being like, Lord, what in the world do you want me to do? Why did you make me? Because you woke me up this morning. I'm awake and I'm breathing, but I have nothing to do. And that was when I started cooking. I had cooked a little bit. My mom's an insane cook, insane. Like she can make anything. And so I had never dared to dip my toe in that world because I was like, she's the best anyway. Why even try? You know what I mean? And right. And when you talk about pressure, I see it now in my daughter where we both have this thing where it's like, well, if I do something and I'm not the best at it immediately, then I suck and I failed and I shouldn't even try it, which is but so is that, crazy. Is that a woman right? thing or is that a, a, an Asian thing? Because you're Asian, I'm Asian. Is it a woman thing? Is it a combination of the two? What is it about that? I, you know, I just call it a perfectionist streak. Like I cannot do any job real quick because I have to do it perfectly. Yeah. I remember reading this blog one time and this uh, mom, she's a mom of four. And she was like, you got to make sure you do little things for yourself. Like if, you know, if you have 20 minutes when the kids go down, paint your nails and and I was like, it takes you 20 minutes. It takes me an hour and a half. Wait, are you not pushing down your cuticles? Oh my gosh. Are you not filing your nails and doing a base coat and a top coat and the little oil drops? Excuse me. <laughs> you know what I mean? What are you doing on those nails? I'm just telling you the cuticles have to be gone. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm just going to step out of your way. You know, I don't know if that's a woman thing. I know it's a, you know, my, my mom's maiden name is Harrison. So to me, that's a Harrison thing. I thought that I just learned it from her. But then when I look at my daughter, I'm like, there's something genetic because my other daughter doesn't have that problem. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So just, it's just a personality trait. I'm not trying to do away with it. Understood. I'm trying to see like, okay, there's something about this that's great, but I have to know when to rein it in because otherwise I'm going to drive myself crazy and I'm never going to do anything because I'm going to be scared of failing or quote unquote failing. I think also what's really great is after reading your biography, knowing your evolution between being a producer, knowing what it's like to be on my side. And yeah. by the way, I can't record this podcast without saying you went from working on CNN as a producer, which is no joke. Producing is not a nine to five job. It is, it is a hard job that you go yeah. 12, 13 hours for like a three yep. minute piece. And it's, you work under brutal conditions sometimes, but you also produced Sand and Sorrow, a documentary. Yeah. Like what? Uh, it was great. It was, these are all things that sort of fell into my lap and I just said yes to it. You know? So I was in that time when I was like, what in the world am I going to do? I started to cook. Right. So I was cooking. And then my husband said, here's a gift certificate to this cooking school in our neighborhood. So I did this semi-professional thing and then they had connections with restaurants in LA. So I then went and staged, I interned at one of the best restaurants in LA, uh, which actually is closing, which is just, I'm dying oh, no. over it. It's called Luke. Suzanne Gowen was a, is a Alice Waters protege. So there's a long history. And I was like, this is it. You know, I'm working under a woman, a woman that I love, and this is great. And then I realized, well, this is really hard work. That's okay. I used to work like 20 hour days at CNN because I was right. trying to push myself, push myself. I'm okay with hard work, but it wasn't gratifying the same way that CNN was or working on a documentary was. And around that time, I had talked to a friend who knew someone who was making this documentary about Darfur. And she said, he probably can't pay you, but do you want me to connect you? And I was like, heck yeah, I do. And so that was 
I mean, still that documentary Sand and Sorrow is one of the, you know, if I die and there's a crown on my head, one of the jewels will be that documentary because when I die and there's a crown on my head, um, because it was about genocide. It was something I felt really passionate about. It, Darfur was not being covered in the news as much as it should have been. And I got to do something about it. And that was the whole reason I got into news in the first place was to do something about what I thought were the injustices in the world. After talking to you, I feel like I've just been sitting on my ass and looking at my feet my entire career. No. it's a, You've had such an incredible transformation. Well, you know what's so funny is that then I look at myself and I'm like, you haven't done enough yet. So it's just, it's this, we're not okay, Evelyn. <laughs> you and I are not okay. We are punishing ourselves. But the good side of that is that we push ourselves to do more. You know what I mean? Like you're doing this podcast when everybody else is sitting with their feet up and making sourdough bread, you're doing a podcast. Like, this is just who we are. Thank you. But I actually don't know how to make sourdough bread. But thank yeah, you for I that. I don't know either. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of us has a food show and it's not me. <laughs> so funny. But you know what? All kidding aside, I think as women, it's so important that we talk to each other, recognize the similarities and also encourage one another. Yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It seemed like mm -hmm. there was a moment when you saw other people rise in the news business mm -hmm. and you sort of hit a wall mm -hmm. and, you know, we've all hit those walls. Can you talk about how you turned to food despite the huge shadow that your mom may have because you said she was the best cook right. that you knew? I would think that if I was at a low point, it would be more daunting to go towards cooking because your mom is so good at it that it feels a little counterintuitive. So what made you turn it around and actually go towards cooking? You know, so watching cooking shows when we were young, it was something that we did for fun. I would sit there with my mom and my sisters and we would watch cooking shows and it was relaxing. It was soothing. It was educational, but not uh, brain sucking. You know what I mean? And so we had, I think we must have had cable at that point. So I was watching a lot of Food Network. I was watching PBS shows. And even before this, when I was in college, I would watch cooking shows on the weekends because it was just... I couldn't get enough of it. And so me turning to the kitchen was sort of a natural progression out of that. So the way that I made it my own was I, there weren't cooking shows that were showing you how to make Indian food, but there's plenty showing you how to make a roast chicken or lasagna, you know? And so I was like, well, let me do that stuff. 
you know, my mom was, is trained. She went to hospitality school. And so she would make food from all over the world. I didn't grow up with just Indian food, you know? And so I had some sort of comfort with it, but I thought these are things that I can do. And that's how I started cooking. And then what would end up happening is I would be craving some of the flavors of my childhood and I would make a couple of Indian recipes that she had taught me how to make. And then there would be some leftover spice mix and I would put that in the lasagna. You know what I mean? And that's how this sort of this, this way of cooking came out for me, which was a mishmash of Indian Arabic, California, my husband's from Boston. Okay, let's make clam chowder. You know, like these things would just, they would just sort of naturally come together. And and it's kind of my passion project is to talk to people who are in a similar situation to me, who identity wise, if you ask them, who are you? It may be a cloud, right? It may be a fog, but then when they start cooking, it comes out and it's very clear on the plate. This is who I am. And that's how for me, I was making sense of my identity is like, I am roast chicken with turmeric ginger and cardamom. You know what I mean? That is who I am right now. And those, that was, it was like therapy for me. The discovery of identity and exploring your identity in food, that is brilliant. How did you figure that out that you can, that your identity was wrapped up in food? And I love that you said that. Yeah. Well, I, uh, my identity was always wrapped up in food. I mean, I was 10 pounds when I was born. I was chubby and I had an appetite, you know? And so my family is very much that way. You know, my, I was just hanging out with my dad the last time I was in India and he was like, did you know that your grandfather left home at 16 because his mom was not a good cook? And I was like, that's not true. And he was like, well, you'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, that's, that's my lineage, right? That's my lineage. And then my grandfather married Winnie Sequera, who is an excellent, excellent cook. And that's, you know, then my dad grew up with that standard of cooking. Then he married my mom, who was an excellent, excellent cook. And that was the standard of cooking. And so that's kind of that idea of food being the TikTok of our day, not T-I-K, but like T-I-C-K, like the TikTok of our day. I remember when my cousin got married, we were in Goa, which is close to where we're from. And my aunt came all the way from Australia. And I said, well, how was your flight? And she said, oh, it was very nice. They served a nice chicken curry for lunch. And I was like, that is the first thing out of your mouth. It's not turbulence. It's not crying babies. It's not delays. It's that they served a chicken curry for lunch. I love that. That is my family. You know what I mean? So our identity was already so, it is it is one and the same. What we eat and who we are, it's one and the same. And in India, you know, you can tell someone's belief system based on what they're eating, right? If they're Muslim, they're not eating pork. If they're high caste Hindus, they're not eating beef. If they're, you know, if they're drinking whiskey, eating pork, eating beef, they're probably Catholic like me. So, (laughs) you know, food is such a huge part of our identifiers in India that it's just natural for me that my identity comes out in the way that I cook. So it translates who you are Mm -hmm. by how you eat and your taste buds. I mean, and you've had such a worldview since you were a kid. Mm-hmm. that it does reflect in your food. And you yeah. called it mishmash. Uh, people call it's really fusion. Yeah, it is. I, I've sort of moved away from that word just because I see some fusion for no reason whatsoever. You know what I mean? Where people are putting things together just because they want to. And that drives me a little crazy. So when Roy Choi was doing Korean Mexican tacos and that took over the world, right? That made sense 
He is this guy who's Korean by descent, who is an L.A. son. L.A. being like really the, the real New Mexico. You know what I mean? Right. So that makes sense. That's his two sides of his brain coming together on a plate. That makes sense. But when people are doing it with no understanding of these heritages or these cultures, then to me, that's disrespectful. And sometimes I can, you know, I can hamstring myself with that, you know, when I'm trying to come up with new ideas, I can be like, well, I want to find the most authentic thing. And then my husband, who is like an American mutt, is like, ain't no such thing as the authentic. And I was like, hold up, white man. <laughs> you know? But he's kind of right, you know, so I'm trying to find that middle ground. And that's the only reason that I kind of shudder when I hear fusion is that my my approach is to do it with as much understanding as possible. I just want to go one step further and you tell me if you agree with this. And this is something I just sort of thought of, you know, my, the podcast is representation, but it's not just race, gender, and orientation. It is those things and more, but Mm -hmm. in terms of inclusion and diversity, you know, there's a lot of people that do not understand the importance of diversity Mm -hmm. and feel like maybe something of theirs may be at risk Mm -hmm. of being taken away um, or not having enough, right? You know, you you need to think of that diversity and inclusion almost like food. Mm-hmm. And again, you you tell me if you agree. I'm not fishing for anything here. Mm-hmm. But you can eat the same sandwich all the time, but without any of the condiments and the sides, you're essentially just eating a plain sandwich. Can you imagine eating that plain sandwich every single day? I mean, how interesting would life be if you're just eating the same thing every single day? Well, and the thing is, once you start looking at the backstory of some of the condiments on your sandwich, then you're like, wait a minute. So, you know, so my tagline is come have a seat at my table. I, I pride myself on having friends I don't agree with. One of my friends is deeply into new age. Another one of my friends is, I don't know what actually. And then I'm Christian. Me and my new age friends have had like, such long, sometimes arguments about things. But then I'm like, you hungry? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'll I'll make you something. You know what I mean? So I, I think it's really healthy for us to be sitting at a table with people we don't know or don't agree with, or uh, are like 180 degrees diametrically opposed to or by. But the reason I said, come have a seat at my table is because we've bought into this lie that there's not enough you know, and then that's why people get scared. There's plenty of room. I remember, you know, when I started at Food Network, there was, I think there was, I think it was the only Indian at that point. Then then Manit Chohan came along. And so then there was the two of us. And and it's actually kind of funny because people think that we're the same person because we're both Indian. We both have these round faces and we both have a nose ring and we're both judges and stuff. And it's funny because if you met us, we're very different. Of course. Um, I'll take it because I think she's gorgeous. So I'm like, okay. But I think it's really important to have like people that you don't agree with. So when I started, something that happens within immigrant communities, I think, Maybe I'm overstepping. I know it happens in the Indian community. My friend said it best. He's like, we're like crabs in a bucket. A crab tries to climb out of the bucket and the other crabs pull the crab back down. It's like, you don't get to go free. You don't get to excel without us pulling you down with us. And I've noticed, I noticed that before, but what I've noticed is as this generation gets a little bit older, there is a much more encouraging, edifying attitude that I'm getting from Indian Americans. And it is so awesome. Yes. It is so awesome. I'm seeing that crab in the bucket mentality disappear. I agree. 
used to be, I could do that. Why is she on TV? I could, I could be making better curries than her. I agree. I don't claim to be an expert. I'm just doing what I do the best I can. And if I get caught up in being the best at all times, I will never enjoy what I'm doing. And I will never bring that joy of discovery to what I'm doing to people who are watching. And then here's one thing you will love. So when they studied, they studied flavor compounds in French, Italian, sort of European cooking. They looked at the flavor compounds and it was like like and like. So lemon, fennel, olive oil, garlic. The flavor compounds looked very similar and that's how they cook. When you look at Indian, Chinese, uh, Southeast Asian cooking, the flavor compounds could not be more radically different than each other. So built into the way that you and I and our ancestors cook is this idea of clash Yes. Clashing flavors coming together and building something beautiful. And I think that's why the flavors in Asia in general, maybe not Japan, but for the most part, are big and loud and vibrant and addictive and people can't get enough of them. And I love that to me is, hi, here's a lesson on how we can be. We could all just hang out in our echo chambers and that tastes nice. You want to be excited by life? Go hang out with people that you don't agree with. But I love that you said that about Asian flavors, and I certainly hear you. Where it's bold. And going back to the crab um, uh, example, mm-hmm. now I'm going to speak very generally. In the past, there was a real feeling of competition amongst the Asian community, and and probably that would apply to most minority groups. You know, the competition over the scarcity of opportunity. Yeah, that everybody would sort of be like, "Oh, me, me." Yes. And in recent years, I've noticed a real shift in that sort of mentality. Yes. Where it's become much more encouraging, much more supportive, yeah. much more nurturing. And I'm so thankful for it. But you know what else is that I'm seeing? We need more of that within women. We do need to work on being more of a sisterhood, helping each other out, being more encouraging, being more supportive. Again, that's why I'm, it's coming from that, that mentality where there's not enough. There's not enough spaces for all of us to be here. So I need to be better than you or I'm going to get kicked out. And I think the more that we see diversity play out on our screens, the more we realize there's infinite room for all of us. Because you know what? I'm more than my Indianness. I am Indian, but I'm so much more than that. You know, I'm, I'm a girl that was excluded her whole life. So inclusion is a big part of what I do. I'm a girl that was bulimic in high school. So the way that I eat now oh, is, wow. yeah, you know, it was like, is really important to me. I'm a mother. You know, there are all these things where I'm so much more than just the color of my skin. And so, yes, there's room for me because I have more to talk about than the fact that I'm Indian. Right. You know, and don't, and that was also one of the things I remember when I competed on Food Network Star, I had such a hard time figuring out their big thing was, what's your point of view? What's your point of view? And I was like, this is my point of view, mishmash. Like, this is who I am, right? By the end, we had sort of come to, we'd fine-tuned it to like, I am introducing Indian food to people who would normally be a little scared of it and have either had bad experiences with it or think it's too complicated or too expensive, all these things. And I was, now I've broadened it to, I'm trying to make the unfamiliar familiar. That's awesome. And I, and it's so interesting, this thing that you said about, you know, encouraging rather than breaking down. That's one of the things I'm really proud of in my relationship with Manit is that we are encouraging each other. We are sisters. Once upon a time, something about the atmosphere, I wish I could say that I wouldn't have given into it and made her like my enemy. But 
whatever it is, whether it's God, whether it's timing, whether it's Manit herself, we are sisters. We've pitch things together. We've got each other's backs. When someone says, oh, I love you, Unchopped. I'm like, I know. Isn't many amazing Unchopped? <laughs> you oh, know? That's so great. But that's the way it should yeah. be. Isn't it so much better? It's so much better. and it, But it does take a lot of confidence in yourself. And for me, I can't do this without my faith because my faith says my steps are ordered. My faith says God has a plan for me and he's written my story already. And, you know, when you say all these sweet things about my resume, I, all I can say is praise God. God gave me all those things. God gave me a career at CNN. He gave me that documentary to work on. He gave me Food Network Style. Like all of these things have been because I'm like, I don't know. I'll just do what you tell me to. And everything's worked out so much better than I could have written for myself. You couldn't have done reached the heights that you have reached if you couldn't deliver or were willing to do the work respectfully. God may have given those opportunities to you, but you had to do it girl. I am trying to receive that the best that I know how. I think that's one of the reasons that immigrant communities push so hard, right? Is they, they know what it's like to not have. Right, right. Right. Like I really want to take my girls back to India because there is something in the way that they talk to me that I'm like, oh, you don't know that kids can have nothing. And that's not their fault. That's not their fault, right? They don't see it. But I'm like, I grew up going back to India and seeing little girls on the side of the road selling garlands of jasmine so that they could help to feed their family. You know what I mean? When you have that in the back of your brain, you work so differently. You're so much more grateful for the things that you do have. And, and I want them to have that. We're taking them to India, you know, because I, I need them to have that understanding. And I think that's the thing about immigrant communities and why, in general... In general, we work so hard because we know what it's like to to have nothing, and you do, you're so scared of that feeling you don't ever want to be there again. I I understand what you're saying, and I think, and I'm grateful for that because if I didn't have that work ethic, and also let's face it, fear of failure, uh, for a multitude of reasons, you know, fear is a huge motivator. You said something that to me on the phone, which I want on a T-shirt. <laughs> you said I don't have to agree with you to still love you. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to you have a seat at my table. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about the genesis of this idea or value and what it means and how you exercise that every single day? Yeah, this it sort of came about around the time that I was that God was really pulling me close to him. You you start to look at things differently, right? Like the lens that I look at the world through is now Christ. And so I was finding living in LA, which is probably, you know, when you think about progressives, right? People landing on the East coast back in the day and then making their way to the West coast. I mean, it was those people who were the most progressive that were like, there's land over there and I'm going, you know? Right. Right. And then your ancestors too. And my husband has no problem. He's a very straight talker, which is one of the things I I love so much about him. And a, a lot of our relationship was based on me saying something and him being like, no, that's not true. And I'll be like, oh, excuse me. When I went to Catholic church, they said Mary did this, 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 and this. And he's like, well, let's open up the Bible. You know, so the thing is that my marriage is based on having discussions about things and arguing about things and then loving each other, even though we don't agree. And so then that would extend to my friends. And so there were times where I was seeing, especially in the in the golden age of Facebook, um, <laughs> <laughs> where people were having these 
awesome, awesome discussions about things, but then they were getting angry and it was getting personal and they were slinging insults at each other. And I was like, oh, 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 we've lost the point of what this is about. The human experience isn't about me. You know, the God experience is not about me just hanging out with Christians. Jesus didn't hang out with people that agreed with him. He wasn't, you know, he was deliberately going to places where he knew people, you know, people would be like, if you say that again, I'm going to kill you. And eventually they did, you know? So, so I think having that as my model is like, I, I want to have a conversation with you and I want us to disagree, but I also want us to love and respect each other at the end of it, because otherwise this conversation will never go to the next level. Right, right, right. We're going to take it personally and then we're going to get so caught up in this. And then I'm going to equate you with only that viewpoint and only see you in that narrow little pigeonhole. No, people are three dimensional. So it's just, it's really big to me, especially because I think, when I say I'm a Christian, there are things that people assume about me. I'm a bigot. I'm a homophobe. I'm a, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so I'm like, can we talk about it? Right. You know what I mean? And so maybe that's why I'm a little sensitive to it is that I'm like, don't, please, let's have a discussion about it before you make assumptions about me. And you and I can disagree, but I love you. I do. And I care about you and I want the best for you. And can you do the same for me? I love that you said that. So one of the many reasons why I created this podcast was, you know, there's so many problems in the world. They're so complicated. And I don't think that we're talking or listening to understand. We're, we're really listening to respond. It's so important to go beyond all of those labels and start learning about who they are as people mm-hmm. and to listen and learn. Mm-hmm. So when you said that to, to me, I was like, you're right. We may not agree, mm-hmm. but it's important that we listen to try to understand. Do you find that that is a difficult practice for you to listen, to not agree, uh, but to continue to love? Um, I think it was harder at first. This woman that I, who is a, a teacher that I follow, she was talking about how in this era of Facebook and Instagram and all of this kind of stuff, it's like, we're so concerned about ourselves and how people, you know, how many likes did I get? How many views did I get? That kind of thing that we've kind of grown this bubble around ourselves. It's like, we've, we've taken our skin and we've blown, we're blowing it up like a balloon, you know? And what happens when a balloon is too big? Pops. It pops, right? And so what ends up happening is when we rub up against someone with this really thin inflated skin, what feels like a gentle, like, hey, bud, you know, can feel like a freaking pinprick because we're so inflated. And so that's when people like react, you know what I mean? And so I think as I've, you know, gotten older and having walked with the Lord that much longer and then also had children, I don't have as much time to think about myself. I still do because I'm a human being and that's our nature. But the less you think about yourself, the less likely you are to get offended. Right. You know what I mean? Because you're not thinking, you're not putting yourself up on a pedestal. It's gotten easier. There are still moments where I'm like, how could you talk to me like that? And I just got into a Facebook thing the other day. And then I had to post something the next day because even in the midst of the thing, I was like, I cannot believe you're talking to me like this. And I had to post something the next day saying, I think we're losing sight of each other's humanity here. Yeah. You know, and 
And so, and people were putting all kinds of reasons for it. Like I remember saying, someone saying, you know, blah, 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 fuck her. And I was like, excuse me, this is, this is what we're doing here. It's not the curse word. It's what's behind you saying yeah. that. You could say, you could say bloop her, but if you say it with the same venom, I'm going to be upset that you said bloop her. You know what I mean? That's the thing that I'm trying now is like, just to make sure that I pray before I write and I calm myself down and I just, I speak only truth and I don't talk about myself and I don't talk about that person. Just talk about the idea because when you start doing that, then you're, you, you're losing the argument, honestly. Right. 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 And no one is going to be able to hear you because they're going to be so caught up in the fact that you just insulted them or insulted someone that they love or care about. Right. Then you can't hear. Which is what's happening. We're just stuck in these vicious echo chambers. Given all of your personal and professional, and I know this is a big question, what's one piece of advice that you could, you'd like to pay forward to people? That's a, that's a big one, darling. Um, I think the, <laughs> one of the best, one of the best things I ever heard was understanding the word integrity. So integrity comes from the word integer which is the idea of one, right? So the idea is who you are on Sunday at church. Let's say wherever you are the best version of yourself, who you are on Sunday at church, you need to be on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then back again on Sunday. There is no part of what you do that is hidden from the eyes of the Lord. And if you don't want him to see you acting that way, then don't do it. That has really helped me, this idea that like, I don't get a break on being a better human being. We need to do that every day at every second, every minute, you know, and it helped me that I used to be a horrible gossiper. Okay. Horrible. <laughs> and, um, because I would get off on it, right. That's what gossiping is. Like, did you hear so-and-so blah, 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 blah. I just can't believe that she would do that. What are you doing in that moment? You're putting yourself up on a pedestal and you're shooting that person down, you know? And I didn't really think about the ramifications of that. And so if I wouldn't do that on Sunday at church, then I shouldn't be doing it Wednesday at 11 p.m. after a couple of whiskeys. You know what I'm saying? Right. So that's just been, that's been helpful to me. I, I had a couple of friends that wanted to, that went on um, Guy's Big Project, which is a reality show. Sure. And they said, well, how do we, how do we make sure that they don't manipulate what we say and make us look dumb or make us look like bad guys or whatever. And I was like, just don't say anything like that. Yeah. Right. Don't right. be a villain. Don't be a bad guy. Don't be an ass. And then they won't, they won't have material, you know? Right. If you don't have that footage, yeah, there's nothing to show. <laughs> yeah. You know, the definition of, of representation for me, but how would you define representation? Hmm. Another big question. It is another big question. Well, I would go back to what my tagline is. Representation is everyone has a seat at the table. Whether you agree with them or not, whether you think they're a villain or a hero, everyone has a seat at the table. And then we go from there. So listen, we have a signature sign off at this uh, podcast. All right. It's a million dollar question here. We ask all of our guests to let us know who they are and what you represent. Okay. Um, I might need to take a couple cracks at it and I might start crying. Artie. No, it's good. It's good. Um, I'm Artie Sequera and I represent the excluded who have been redeemed and been given the chance to be the includer. That's who I am. Thanks so much to Artie Sequera for hanging out. I had a blast with her. Be sure to follow her on Twitter. Her handle is Artie Party. 
Coming up next, a talented actress from Shadowhunters, October Faction, and Burden of Truth, the amazing Nicola Karaya Demude will be here. This is Nicola Karaya Demude, and I'm coming to hang out on Reppin, so don't miss it. Reppin is available on all top podcast platforms, so you know, subscribe, share, leave us a review, let us know how we're doing. Also, you can reach us on Twitter at Reppin Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. You'll see who's coming up next and get some exclusive behind the scenes content. Thanks always to Nelson Pinero, my musical composer and technical director for his Midas touch and always love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.